Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time of worship this morning. <clears throat> we thank you that we get to come together, remember who Jesus is, especially remember his coming. Uh, he is, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. We celebrate that, God. It changes everything in human history. The fact that Jesus came, uh, the fact that he died, uh, the fact that he came back from the dead. And, uh, Father, it changes our lives immensely. Help us as we reflect on an implication uh, of this Advent story this morning and uh, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the uh, Galapagos Islands, <clears throat> there is a species of bird called the Sula Granti. It's an interesting bird because uh, it, when the, a couple, uh, two of these birds get together and they reproduce, they lay two eggs, but they do, lay them a few days apart from each other. And uh, the parents only raise one of the chicks that come from these eggs. Uh, when the second egg hatches, the firstborn chick, assuming it's healthy, actually pushes that newborn chick out of the nest and that chick dies. And the parents just actually watch this. Uh, they wait to see which one of the two are, is left in the nest and that's the one that they raise and care for. It's called obligate sibling murder. That's the uh, name for this behavior. Naturalists also call this the Cain and Abel syndrome. Uh, the second born child, or in this case, chick, is really just a spare. Uh, it's an afterthought, right? And consequently, it's discarded if it's not needed. And I'm just curious, is anybody here a second born child? <laughs> Quite a few of us, yeah, okay. You ever feel like you didn't get the best stuff growing up? <laughs> You know, you didn't get the best attention. I mean, parents, when they have that first child, it's like laser-focused, you know, watch everything they do and, you know, what they have in their mouth or their hands or what have you. By the time you get to the second child, you know, you look across the room, you see they're eating something. It's probably not going to kill them, so, you know. <laughs> the second-born, uh, they don't get the best toys, usually. They get a lot of hand-me-downs. They don't get the best or newest clothes, particularly if you happen to be of the same gender as the first sibling. That's especially true. Best car seat. Ooh, car seats. Oh, grody, despicable, terrible things. And, and they, those get handed down, you know, to the, the second born. You, you get the hand-me-downs. You get the idea. Now, <clears throat> this, by the way, is not a new development. Uh, culturally speaking, it just isn't. In the ancient world, the firstborn son generally got all, and I mean all the good family stuff. This was called the law of primogeniture. Uh, it's part of why the book of Genesis, if you've ever read through the book of Genesis, it's kind of a series of sibling rivalries, actually. Uh, there's Cain and there's Abel. There's Ishmael and there's Isaac. There's Jacob and there's Esau. And then there are Jacob's 12 sons, right? And there's all kinds of rivalry that takes place between those 12. You may remember earlier too, Cain kills his brother Abel. That's where that uh, term comes from um, that the naturalists were using. You know, when God confronts Cain about where his brother Abel is, do you remember how Cain responds? He actually responds with a question. He says to God, am I my brother's keeper? That's his question. And, of course, he's insinuating he's not. I'm not my brother's keeper. Why are you asking me where he is? Uh, if you read Genesis carefully, one of the things that you find uh, around this whole law of primogeniture is the idea that the firstborn gets all the good stuff. And uh, that idea in the book of Genesis continually gets challenged. It gets challenged. It's very much like God is saying, blessing is available to those who the world systems say are unblessed. Uh, th those people are not to be blessed. And yet the, the book of Genesis kind of takes that on and challenges that idea. It's a little foretaste of what would later get turned upside down in the kingdom of God, in Jesus' kingdom. And it's why Jesus, when he was teaching, when he was here on earth, would say things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, because that's a stupid thing to say. The poor in spirit are not blessed, but Jesus says they are blessed. And he says, theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Jesus went on to say, blessed are those who mourn. Well, how could that possibly be, Jesus? People who mourn aren't blessed. Well, Jesus says, yes, they are, because they shall be comforted. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, says Jesus. You see, in the kingdom of God, blessing is available to people who you would not think 
you would not think they could experience blessing. Blessing in the kingdom of God is, you could say, available to everybody. And God in Genesis is actually looking for somebody to bless, somebody who will say, yes, yes, I am my brother's keeper. And that brings us to our story for this morning. It's a Christmas story, just like last week's was a Christmas story. Uh, this is a Christmas story too. And I'll tell you why right up front, because it's about reconciliation. This story is about reconciliation. Last week, we talked about being reconciled to God and uh, that the work of God in the world is the work of reconciliation. He is reconciling the world to himself. That's why Jesus came to this earth. That's why Advent. That's why Jesus lived and died so that our sins could be forgiven. So our broken relationship with God could be reconciled. But God's reconciling work doesn't stop there Uh, Not at all. He actually wants us to be reconciled to others as well as being reconciled to him. The Apostle Paul said it this way. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so this morning, that's what we're going to talk about, how Jesus wants us to be reconcilers. That is part of why Jesus came. And so as we proceed this morning, I want to invite you to think about any broken relationships in your life. I'm just going to assume there are some because you're a human being like me. And in our families or among our friends, exes, schoolmates, what have you, uh, I'm just assuming there are people where you might have some brokenness of relationship. Places where healing, relational healing needs to occur. And so I would ask you to be thinking about this, maybe prayerfully, giving sober, serious thought to the the question, is God calling me to reconcile with someone somewhere? Um, We're picking up the story that we started into last week. If you weren't here, you might want to go listen to that message online. Uh, There was a family in Genesis that had 12 brothers. Uh, One of those brothers named was Joseph. So some of you know some of this story. But this is how Joseph's story begins. Uh, We read that Joseph, a young man of 17, just 17 years old, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. So a little family background here. Uh, The dad, of course, is Jacob. That's the dad. Uh, He had sons by his first wife, Leah. He had sons by his second wife and favorite wife, Rachel. Uh, He had sons by Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, and he had sons by Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah. And uh, the whole family's kind of a Kardashian mess, right? You got that. (laughs) And the two maidservants, Zilpah and Bilhah, are, of of course, the lowest status wives in that culture. And what that meant was their sons were the lowest status brothers or sons. And they would be easy to pick on if you were a son of Rachel, for example. And that's kind of what Joseph does here. Uh, He gives his father a bad report about these sons, sons of Zilpah Zilpah and Bilhah. And uh, apparently Joseph here does does not wish to be his brother's keeper, right? Uh, He's more concerned about actually spying on them and giving this bad report back to the father. And this is what we read. It says, now Israel, that's Jacob, another name given to Jacob. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Boy, that's a loaded statement right there. And that speaks volumes in terms of the undertow of dysfunctionalism in this family, right? Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. Some older translations call this uh, the robe of many colors. And you've seen the, uh, probably seen the musical around that. Uh, Joseph was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Are you keeping this straight with me so far? Okay. Uh, and, And not just that, but we're also told about Rachel, that Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. In Genesis 29, we're told that. Uh, Whereas Leah 
uh, who Jacob's first wife was not quite as lovely, apparently. Uh, we're also told in the Bible that Rachel's son, Joseph, was well-built and handsome. Uh, we're, we're, so I, we'd have to assume that, you know, Joseph is getting that trait, that, those good-looking qualities from his mother, Rachel. And so um, here we are now. <clears throat> Uh, it's come time in the story where, Joseph, or where Jacob, for some reason, we're not told why, decides to give out presents. Only not presents, really just one present. And he chooses his favorite son, Joseph, to be the recipient. And he gets this robe, this special robe made. It's a robe of many colors. It's an ornate robe. And, and he gives that to just his son, Joseph, which marks Joseph as the favorite. It's, like, it's getting underlined. It's getting highlighted in yellow. You're my favorite, not them. You're my favorite, Joseph. How do you think Joseph's brothers are going to feel about this? How are they going to respond to this? Well, the text says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And they could not speak a kind word to him. It's kind of striking in this story. It doesn't say that they get mad at their father, who's the one perpetrating all of this dysfunctionalism in the family. Nobody goes to Jacob. Nobody goes to Israel and says, Dad, what are you doing? This is hurtful. This is painful. This is awful to be in a family where you so clearly single out one of us as your favorite. And then what are the rest of us? Chop liver? And the answer would have been, yeah, yeah, you are by comparison. But it's so interesting to me that in this family, nobody talks about the root of the problem. And of course, that's not a new problem in families, is it? Uh, families are very often that way. The first sign of brokenness in this family, in the relationships, is not the presence of violence. That's coming. We're going to see that in a moment. But here at the very beginning of this process of this brokenness, what we actually see is an absence of kindness. It says they could not speak even a word of kindness to Joseph. And we see withdrawal. We see avoidance. We see distance, we see ignoring, we see envy, we see resentment. Those things you see are meant to hurt and to wound, and they do. They certainly do. Now, Joseph uh, very callously makes things much worse here in our story. Uh, Joseph, as you know, has a dream. And in his dream, all of his brothers, they're like sheaves of wheat standing out in a field. And uh, Joseph does not keep this dream to himself. In fact, you get the sense he can't wait. He's almost gleeful to share it with his brothers. And so he goes to them and he, he tells them how their sheaves of wheat representing them were bowing down to Joseph, right? What a great dream, you know, for Joseph. And it says, when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. So this is going from bad to worse, right? And there is no indication that Joseph had any clue of the pain, the woundedness he was inflicting on his brothers by gleefully sharing his dream with them. But he was causing them all kinds of hurt and all kinds of pain. So his brothers say to him, do you intend to reign over us? Really, you little pipsqueak, you youngest of us all, you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us, they asked. And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So things are pretty bad in this family. Uh, Joseph seems oblivious to it. And uh, we think that because he has this, uh, we, I would say he's oblivious to it simply because he has another dream, a sequel dream, it's the same theme, only now it's about his mom and dad and all his brothers. Everybody now is bowing down to him. And uh, Joseph kind of revels in telling this second dream to his brothers and to his mom and dad. And uh, when he does that, we read that uh, they hate him even more. So the hatred level is rising. Joseph's cluelessness is pretty much just constant and consistent at this point. And we wonder at this point in the story, how could anybody be this clueless? Are, are you sitting next to somebody who's that clueless? <laughs> yes, we all are, aren't we? We can all be pretty clueless sometimes when it comes to these kinds of things. Uh, in the very next verse, the brothers who are homicidally mad at Joseph by now, they're away tending the sheep. And Papa Jacob calls his favorite son, Joseph, to him. 
and says, I think I'm going to send you out to check up on your other brothers. Sounds like Joseph is now going to go do some more spying. That's, that's what's going on here, which is what started all this bad blood in the first place. So with the brothers mad enough to kill him and with no parental protection whatsoever, off goes, I would say, very naive, foolish, insensitive Joseph. Uh, this is an unbelievable story. Remember, this is a Christmas story, and we'll get to how it is in a, in a little while. The, the brothers see Joseph coming, we read, from far off. How would they know it's Joseph? Yeah, the coat of many colors, for sure, for sure. He's wearing that robe that his dad gave him that marks him out as the favorite. And so what do they say when they see him coming? Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Uh, kind of a, just a, a, a wisdom note aside. This is, this is for free. Um, something we observe in the text. Be very careful who you talk about with your anger. If you're angry at someone, you need to be selective if you're going to talk about that anger towards that person. Uh, Who you share that with matters a great deal. People have the idea that it's always therapeutic to rehearse your anger with a sympathetic friend. You know, just get it out, talk about it and so on. But if your friend reinforces your resentment, if your friend reinforces the bitterness, the envy, the hatred that you have, kind of like the brothers do. You know, the brothers are all ganging up on you. Brothers are all going, yeah, he is a jerk. Yeah, he is a dreamer. Yeah, I am fed up with him too. What should we do? Let's think together. What should we do? How should we get even? How should we get back at him? You see, if you're rehearsing your anger with someone that's going to feed that kind of thinking, that's only going to make your problem worse. That isn't really somebody you need to be sharing with. Some people are like anger incubators. They just cause your anger to grow, to get worse. They don't encourage you to maybe think about your own sin or your own brokenness or, you know, they don't move you in directions that make you more like Jesus. They move you in the opposite direction. Well, one of the brothers in our story, thank goodness, this is the fourth brother. His name is Judah. He comes up with an alternative plan to murder, which is a good thing. Would you agree? Murder's not good among siblings. Uh, So he comes up with an alternative plan. He suggests they sell Joseph into slavery uh, with some traders who were headed down to Egypt. That way they make a profit. They avoid, you know, murdering their their brother. And uh, so the brothers like the idea. That's what they decide to do. They sell Joseph into slavery and they take his robe, that coat of many colors, and they dip it in the blood of a goat. And they take it to their dad and they say, Dad, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is... Uh, your son's robe. Do you recognize this, Dad? And you've got to notice here what they don't say. They don't say, Dad, we found Joseph's robe. Dad, we found our brother's robe. They're already starting to distance themselves from their brother. And this is kind of what we do um, when when we're in a broken relationship. We find ways to distance ourselves from that person uh, with whom we're hurting. And so they say, you know, see, tell us whether this is your son's robe, not our brother's robe. Uh, and again, we dehumanize people. We distance ourselves. Uh, and really, they don't have to lie to their dad so much. They just show him the robe. You tell us, is this his robe? And Jacob is convinced that Joseph now has been killed. And this is what he says. He says, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. That's exactly what the brothers wanted him to believe. And Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And so his father wept for him. And so Jacob goes into mourning and he refuses to be comforted. He chooses to extend that time of mourning on out to infinity, to the day he dies, he says. Now there's an irony here that uh, they, the brothers, while they do successfully get rid of Joseph, their brother, they don't necessarily get what they want. Uh, They don't get their father's love in this story. 
Um, the family doesn't get kind of put back together and healed. Uh, they get sort of what they asked for, which they wanted to get rid of Joseph, but they don't really get what they want. And Joseph too, Joseph now is separated from his family for a period of over 20 years. Uh, he's kidnapped, he's enslaved in the household of, a, of an Egyptian. Uh, he's unjustly framed and accused of, um, of trying to rape that, uh, his slave owner's wife. He's then put into prison, and while he's in prison, he uh, comes across two fellow prisoners who had once served Pharaoh at a very high level, but right now they were in prison. And uh, one night, they both of these two have troubling dreams, and it seems that uh, now Joseph is sensitive, becoming more so at least, because he senses that these two individuals who are now in prison, uh, they're disturbed, they're troubled. He's noticing, that's not something he noticed years ago with his brothers, but he's noticing these things now. And um, he asks them about it. And he tries to help them with their dreams. And as a result, Joseph eventually ends up coming before Pharaoh when Pharaoh has a very troubling dream. They remember this guy in, in prison that he was able to interpret their dream, or one of them does. He actually interpreted both their dreams. You go read the story. And now Pharaoh's got a dream. They need to interpret it. And they remember there's this guy. He's in jail. His name is Joseph. And they bring him in. And Joseph uh, comes. And they, of course, Pharaoh's dream is a weird one. Seven fat cows, seven guinea cows. What does this mean? And Joseph, by God's grace, is able to tell Pharaoh the meaning of his dream. It's about the economy. It's about what, what is to come. Seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine and scarcity. And he tells Pharaoh how to use taxation to stabilize the markets, right? It's a brilliant plan. Pharaoh recognizes that and thinks, okay, I need a guy to administer this plan. You're the guy. And so he makes Joseph the prime minister of Egypt. Huge turnaround. And so the good times come, seven years of plenty. And then the bad times come, seven years of famine. Meanwhile, back home, Jacob and the family are starving. Because this famine is widespread. People are starving. And Jacob, it finally gets so bad, Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to get grain. But he keeps one son home. It's his youngest son. His name's Benjamin. He's new on the scene. Um, this is now who Jacob loves the most. Now that Joseph's no longer around, now there's Benjamin. Benjamin is the son of Rachel just like Joseph was. And, and Benjamin is now the new favorite. So um, the other brothers go down to Egypt. They come before Joseph, their brother, who they do not recognize, and for good reason. He's been gone for 20 years. He's uh, shaved, no doubt, like an Egyptian, uh, not like an Israelite with a beard and so. And I'm sure he looked very different than uh, they would have ever expected to see their 20-year-older brother, Joseph. And they don't recognize them. They don't realize the powerful official that they are bowing down to, face to the ground, is their brother Joseph. But obviously Joseph recognizes them. Uh, Joseph remembers, but he does not tell them who he is. And this is key to the story, actually. Joseph pretends to be a stranger. In fact, he actually treats them rather harshly. He accuses them of being spies. How interesting what you used to do, Joseph. But now he's accusing them of coming to spy. And they tell him, no, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food like everybody else, right? We've come to buy food. And we are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. Your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man, Jacob, who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, that's Benjamin, and one is no more. That's Joseph, you see, they're referring to. And of course, that, that Joseph is listening. He's processing their story. Are they telling the truth? You know, are they going to lie to me? And Joseph says, well, you know, if that's true, then go home. Bring your little brother, that's Benjamin, back as proof, and I'll give you what you need and you will live. Now, we read this story, we interact, interact with it a little bit, 
And we, we wonder, of course, what is Joseph up to here? Why doesn't he just reveal himself to his brothers? Uh, why doesn't he tell them who he was? His brothers are desperate. They'll do whatever he asks. He's the one in power. They have none. Is Joseph just wanting to watch them squirm? Is he getting a little revenge here? Is he getting back at them? And actually, while some tend to think that's what he's doing, I would submit to you he's doing exactly the opposite. I think Joseph is just being wise. I think he wants to reconcile with his brothers, which is a whole lot more than just forgiving them. He wants to reestablish a relationship with them. But he knows that in order to do that, that will take some time. That will take a demonstration of trust. Joseph is going to have to be convinced that these men that he's dealing with now, these brothers, are different men. They've changed. They've grown. They know what they did in the past. They've owned it. They accept it. They repent of it. Christians sometimes throw the word reconciliation around kind of glibly. Uh, and when we do that, it can actually do harm. But one thing I love about this story is that it teaches how costly genuine reconciliation is. And that's why all this weird stuff happens. That's what Joseph is up to in this story. Joseph tells them they must leave one brother with him as collateral while they go back home to get their younger brother. And you're thinking, wow, what's, what's Joseph doing here? Uh, but the, and the, this is what the brothers say. They respond to this. They're, this is what they say. And they don't realize that Joseph can understand them as they speak, right? But this is what they say. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. That's Joseph, right? We saw how distressed he was. When he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. And that's why this distress has come on us. They're going back to that earlier sin and they're owning it. You know, this is happening to us because of the evil that we've done in the past. This is very important information, actually, because when we first read about the brothers selling Joseph into slavery, it doesn't say a word there about Joseph pleading for his life. If it weren't for this passage, we, we wouldn't even know that he did, but apparently he did. And he did so much so, so vociferously that that's what his brothers remember most. You know, the writer of Genesis doesn't record any of that pleading, but here his brothers are remembering just that 20 years later. And now they're not calling him that dreamer. They're not calling him dad's favor. They're actually referring to him as their brother. So Joseph, you see, unknown to them, he begins to see a little bit, a little bit of change in these brothers. So something has been happening in them over the last 20 years, and Joseph turns away to weep. And the brothers go home, leaving one brother behind. And they're home for a long time because their dad will not allow them to take Benjamin and go back to Egypt for more grain. Uh, but the famine is relentless. God's hand is in this. And eventually, in desperation, Jacob sends his boys back to Egypt, this time with the youngest, with Benjamin, his favorite son. And uh, when they return back, they, of course, have to appear again before Joseph. Joseph arranges a, a big feast for them. And they're all sitting down to, uh, to dinner. And they still don't know who Joseph is, right? And here's another little oddity in the story. When portions get served to everybody at this feast, Everybody gets a sizable portion, but then it comes to Benjamin. This is Joseph's brother by their mom, Rachel, right? When it comes to Benjamin, Benjamin gets five times the amount of portion as any of the other brothers. What's going on with that? What a strange gesture. Why would Joseph do that? Well, I would submit that one more time, the youngest son the youngest brother is being treated as a favorite. And Joseph is watching to see what his other brothers do. And he wonders, how will the brothers respond? Will they be envious? Will they be resentful of this younger brother, Benjamin? Will they want Benjamin out of the way? We're sick and tired of this guy. He's, he's our father's favorite. He's always getting special treatment. Has anything changed? I think that is Joseph's question. And so he watches. And the time comes for the brothers to head back home because they've proven that their story is true. And so the sacks get filled with grain and, and uh, Joseph is extremely generous. He gives them back their money. He's giving them all of this grain, all the grain they need. And off they go. 
And the brothers are staggered. Wow, what generosity. But then Joseph sends some servants out after his brothers as they've traveled a short distance away. And he's accusing them, someone, of having taken a very special silver goblet that, you know, means something to him, I suppose. (laughs) And uh, so these servants catch up with the brothers and they search their bags. And lo and behold, there's the goblet. And it's in whose bag? Benjamin. It's in Benjamin's bag. So they all get brought back to Joseph and they're in front of Joseph again. And and Joseph tells them, you know what? The rest of you brothers can leave. You're all innocent. But this guy, Benjamin, he's staying with me and he's going to rot in prison would, would have been the subtext. He will stay with me. There's a rabbi in the Middle Ages who read this story and reflected on it and commented about it. And this is his comment. He said, a true penitent, somebody who's really sorry, really repents. A true penitent is one who commits a sin and then later is given an opportunity to commit the same sin. And they refuse. You see, that's growth has happened. This used to be a sin they would commit without thinking, but now they refuse to commit it. That's a true penitent. Now, so here are the brothers once more dealing with their favored younger brother. This is kind of theme in in this family, right? And this is the one their father loves most. They know that. That's super clear to them. And they can be rid of him now, once and for all, right now. Here's the opportunity. You know, they've been down this path before, but this time they don't even need to do anything, nothing at all. Just leave him there and forget him. As far as they know, Benjamin deserves the punishment. Why was that cup? Why was that cup in his sack? But Judah, surprising to all of us, Judah stands up. Judah, whose idea it was to sell Joseph and deceive his father Jacob 22 years ago, Judah, whose idea it was to betray and violate his daughter-in-law Tamar, that was last week's story, Christmas story, Uh, that Judah stands up and makes the longest, most impassioned speech in the entire book of Genesis. Read it. And what he says is, he says, if he and his brothers go home without Benjamin, they will bring their father's gray head down in misery. Here's literally what it says. He says, Judah says, so now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. And here's the thing, Judah's words here are so revealing. He says to Joseph, and remember, he doesn't know who Joseph is. He says to Joseph, look, we have an aged father who loves this son, Benjamin, very much. Uh, There there is a, a bond between them. This is a son born to him in his old age, born to him of his favorite wife. And his brother, that's Joseph, is dead. And Benjamin is now the only son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, and his father loves him. Notice, notice Judah doesn't say what you might like to hear, which is, you know, our father loves us sons. It would hurt him so much. To, he doesn't say our father loves us all. No, he's recognizing there is a serious, serious, serious flaw with his father. His father has introduced all kinds of heartache and dysfunctionalism into this family with this favoritism crap. But Judah doesn't say that. In fact, I have a sense maybe he's just wrestled, had to wrestle with the fact that this flaw may never get fixed. His dad may never get this straightened out. But I'll tell you something I think Judah has learned by now, and that is that the path of envy and resentment and hatred and self-interest, all of that stuff, bitterness, you name it, all of that stuff is a path that leads to death. It's a path that had caused him to betray everything that once was good in him. And in so many ways, this path had ruined his life. But what's so interesting to me is here now in this moment, Judah has found a way to honor his father, to honor Jacob, a father who was a big mixture of good and evil, good and bad. And this is kind of the climax of this whole book, the book of Genesis. 
Judas says this, he says, your servant, he's referring to himself, your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame for you, before you, my father, all my life. So now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. Wow, <laughs> what a difference. That's a huge difference. Let me pay the price for this boy, Judah says. Let me go to prison and please, please let my brother go free. I will suffer on behalf of my brother. So for the first time now in the book of Genesis, right, this ancient book, Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? A question that has haunted Genesis all the way from Cain to Abel, Ishmael to Isaac, Jacob to Esau, and all 12 of Jacob's sons. Everyone has answered this question, no. No, I am not my brother's keeper. No, I will not be my brother's keeper. Now, finally, for the first time, with the full awareness of the full consequences, Judah says, yes. Yes, I am my brother's keeper. This is a huge pivotal point in the book of Genesis. So now you see Joseph can see, wow, my brothers have changed. They're not the same men they were before. They have become their brother's keeper. And so now he's able to do a lot more than just forgive them. You see, now Joseph can do more than just let go of the resentment and the hatred and the bitterness. Now reconciliation is possible. And so Joseph empties the room. He has all of the Egyptians get out of the room. And uh, so it's just them now, Joseph with his brothers. And he says this, so there's no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. I get a kick out of that. It's like, really? Uh, you had to identify which Joseph? Uh, uh, you know, yeah, the one, yeah. The point really is this. Joseph has not forgotten what his brothers did to him. And you understand, of course, that forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. In, in fact, if you're going to really forgive someone, you can't forget. yeah. Uh, Joseph doesn't forget. He doesn't live in denial around this. He doesn't pretend it didn't hurt or it didn't change literally his whole life. He doesn't excuse or rationalize what they did. He, he wants to forgive them, and I believe probably already has, but he hasn't forgotten. What he really wants is reconciliation, which is something much better than just forgiveness. Now, uh, here is what Joseph does in this horrible set of circumstances. What Joseph does is he, he actually brings God into this equation. He lets God color his whole understanding of all of these events that have happened in his life over the past two decades. This is what he says. He says, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. You just have to go, wow, that is perspective. That is wisdom. That is insight. And that is crucial to the story because you see, attempts to at reconciliation in our world, your, uh, your attempts, my attempts can be damaging if those attempts uh, are not built on something substantive like genuine repentance. Genuine trustworthiness. Those are some things that are absolutely essential to reconciliation. You see, it would not have been right for Joseph to say, do not be distressed until he knew they were deeply distressed. They had changed. They were now trustworthy. Pain and distress over the wrong that we do are an indispensable part of our spiritual growth. It's an indispensable part of our moral health. I understand, just a little segue or parenthesis here. You know, the degree to which you love and appreciate Jesus is directly proportional to the degree that you know how you suck spiritually. <laughs> the degree to which you're aware of your deep-seated sinfulness 
is directly proportional to the degree that you appreciate what Jesus did for you on, on the cross. And so if you think you're a pretty good guy, pretty good gal, definitely better than who you're sitting next to, to the degree that you think that way is the degree that, to which you diminish the value of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that's why reconciliation it has to be built on true repentance, true awareness, true ownership of your own brokenness so that you then can be open-armed towards the person that you may have offended, that you may have harmed, that you may have hurt, and likewise, they own their part. Now reconciliation can happen. And that's a good, good thing. Uh, you know, it's, um, it is true that when somebody wrongs you, you don't have to live in the prison of resentment, hatred, wanting revenge. You don't have to live there. You can forgive that person, even if they're unrepentant. Uh, you can choose not to live in the prison of resentment, even if they don't repent. But reconciliation, the rebuilding of relationship, that actually requires repentance, which takes some time to demonstrate the trustworthiness of that repentance. Am I right? And that's what happens here in this story. This story takes 22 years to unfold. Uh, the brothers are reconciled and they're, they're finally healed. And we're told this, that Joseph, Joseph gave them carts and he also gave them provisions for their journey back home uh, to uh, each of them. He gave new clothing. What kind of clothing do you think he gave them? Uh, we don't know, but I bet it wasn't underwear. I bet, I bet what he gave them was a robe and I'll bet maybe it was a robe of many colors because he wanted everybody celebrating that they were a favorite, right? We're reconciled. And, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, this is a Christmas story. Um, let me show you what I mean. So sometime later, Jacob, now the dad, is very old. He's soon to die. And he gathers the brothers together. He's going to give them a blessing to all of his sons. And remarkably, the most, and I mean that remarkably, the surprising thing, the thing no reader would expect is that the most important blessing does not go to Joseph the golden boy. Uh, the most important blessing does not go to Benjamin, the baby of the family, the other favorite son. The real blessing goes to Judah of all people. Judah, Judah, your brothers, uh, this is Jacob says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons will bow down to you. That wasn't in Joseph's dream. Jacob says, you are a lion's cub. The scepter will not depart from Judah. The scepter is what the king holds, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs, permanently is the point here, shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. So the scepter, the crown, the kings of Israel will now all come from Judah, not from Benjamin, not from, Ju uh, not, not from uh, Joseph. And so they did. King David of the tribe of Judah, right down from David all the way to King Jesus of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. Jesus marched into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, a symbol not of military might, but a symbol of peace and reconciliation, a symbol of humility. And his robe will be taken from him and will be washed in his own blood. And he will say, as his ancestor Judah said, let the punishment be on me. Let the cross come to me. I will drink the cup of wrath. I am my brother's keeper. This is what Paul is talking about when Paul says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's our message. And you see, through Jesus, we can be reconciled to God. That's where it starts. 
We can be forgiven. We can be accepted. We can be adopted into the family of Christ. We can be loved in spite of our sin. That is reconciliation. And that is why Jesus came as a babe in a manger, as a servant, as a sacrifice. And that is Christmas. I can be reconciled to God. How? I repent of my sins. I own them. I admit them. They are mine. And I need someone to save me. And that is Jesus. But here's the deal. I cannot say, God, I want to accept your gift of reconciliation, your gift of acceptance and forgiveness of me, even though my sins against you were many. But I don't want to seek reconciliation with somebody else because their sins against me are many. I'll take grace from you, Lord, but I won't give it to others. You see, that's the way of envy. That's the way of resentment. That's the way of revenge. That's the way of bitterness. That's the way of hatred. It has been tried and tried and tried and tried by all of us. And that is the way that leads to death. And so this Christmas, I think God would challenge us If there are people in your life with whom you need to reconcile, then I'm challenging you, pray about that. What would God have you do? Is there a call you should make, a note you should write? Is there a meeting you should have to begin that process to seek reconciliation? Is it a brother, a sister, a mom, a dad, a son, a daughter, an ex, somebody at school? I know you hate this message because I hate this message. This is always messy. Reconciliation can take 22 years or more. I don't know how long yours might take, but I know this. I know that the one thing that delights God more than anything is when we are reconciled to the Father and then we become reconcilers because we have a ministry of reconciliation given to us. We have a message of reconciliation about how we are reconciled to God and therefore we can be reconciled with each other. And so we ought not ever give up wanting to, trying to, seeking to reconcile. Now, here's the thing. You know, I know there are difficult people in your life because you are a human being and you probably have a family. And those difficult people are there for a reason. Do you understand that? You actually need them. They're part of your spiritual growth, part of you becoming like Jesus. In fact, if you don't have some difficult people in your life, just call us here at church. We got a list of difficult people. We'll assign you one or two. That's all you'll need to be helped in this way. (laughs) Again, all kidding aside, I'm just saying, Christmas is is about God sending his son to pursue what needed to be done so that we could be reconciled to God. And reconciliation doesn't stop there. It just starts there for us. We now ourselves become reconcilers by the people we seek to repair, you know, brokenness with. Uh, We have the message of reconciliation and whether that's a member of your family with whom you need to be reconciled, if that's a child, if that's a business partner, if it's an ex, you've been betrayed, you've been lied to, you've been lied about. I mean, I know this stuff hurts. And if it is unrepented of and remains unrepented of, you won't get to reconciliation. You need to get to forgiveness for your sake. But you won't get to reconciliation. That takes two. Um, You know, our capacity, friends, for brooding and for resentment and for self-pity and for hatred and for wanting revenge, our capacity for those things is astounding. But just know this, all of those things lead directly to chronic bitterness and death. They just do. And uh, here's just one thought I'll leave you with. When we read the story of Joseph... A very clear theme in that story is is when Joseph was sold into slavery, Genesis tells us, this is uh, Genesis 39, it says God was with Joseph in the midst of that slavery. God was working in Joseph and on Joseph. 
later on when he's falsely accused and then thrown into prison, so it goes from bad to worse. We're told again in Genesis 39 that God was with Joseph in prison. And here's the thing. You see, the same is true with us today. Regardless what brokenness you happen to be living in at the moment, God is with you. Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. He can help us pursue reconciliation. He can equip us. He can change us. He can grow us so that we can do reconciliation and do it right. What we want to see is truth-based, sin-confessing, wrongs-amending, heart-healing, God-powered reconciliation happening in our lives. That's what pleases him. So my challenge, pray, work, hope, take steps for that to happen in your life where there are broken relationships. You want to please God? You want to honor God? Be a reconciliation seeker. Pray with me. God, I pray for everybody who in this room knows what it feels like to be hurt, to be wounded, to be betrayed or victimized or rejected. I pray that you would give us all wisdom and courage and a softness of heart and a determination of spirit that moves us in the direction of reconciliation. God, please be with us in and on this journey of reconciliation. Bring wholeness and health and perspective. Bring the awareness that you are in the midst of all of our circumstances, God, wanting to work for your glory, for your honor wanting to mend and heal where there's brokenness and woundedness. And Father, each of us that have someone in mind that where we know some kind of reconciliation needs to happen, would you give us wisdom on how to pursue that? Give us a heart that is like Jesus' heart. And uh, Father, make us so grateful so grateful for the reconciliation that you have wrought on our behalf that we then in turn become messengers, messengers of reconciliation to others. All these things, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.